On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and he awoke, excuse me, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We are in an exciting journey through the gospel of Mark. Jesus calms the storm today. The power we'll be looking at. And from the last verse, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? I ended up with that title, who then is this? Who is this? We've been looking at this Jesus and seeing who he is. That's what Mark is doing. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the opening of the gospel of Mark. It says, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. That's the theme. Mark is going to be showing how Jesus is the Christ, the promised king. Jesus, the king, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the king. That's what those words mean. He's going to be revealing Jesus over and over and over again to us, many facets, many ways, showing who Jesus is. And not only that, he's the Christ, the King, he is the Son of God, showing Jesus and his divinity, his Godness. He is the second person of the Trinity, he is God. Mark has taken us through this journey. We've touched on some of these themes over and over again. The Christ or the Messiah was to have someone come before him to introduce his arrival. And Mark begins talking about John the Baptist right away, that Jesus had this forerunner. And he announced the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth as as the Christ. John the Baptist, the great announcer, the voice crying in the wilderness, Mark says, is this John, John the Baptist. Mark describes John's preaching, saying in verse 7, After me comes one who is mightier than I. He's talking about the greatness of the one to follow him, pointing the way to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Wow. John the Baptist was this powerful on-the-scene minister coming on the scene that they hadn't seen in 400 years. No prophet, no voice from God, just a dry and weary land of 
pushing on with their faith with God, and yet all of a sudden this great following, this great outpouring, and John is saying, this is nothing. You haven't seen nothing yet. Huge crowds gathering around John the Baptist, coming to the Jordan River to be baptized, turning from their sins, this powerful move of God, and John is saying, there's one coming, this is my purpose, this is my announcement to you. There's one coming that I'm not worthy to untie his sandal and take his shoes off something much more greater and powerful is coming and the bible had prophesied that the messiah would have this announcer jesus uh, says that john the baptist was the elijah to come the bible had prophesied this prophet coming like in the spirit and the power of elijah and jesus says that was john the baptist if you can receive it He's come. He's announcing the way. And Mark brings this to a head. And right away, John, you know, Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And we looked at that baptism, how powerful, powerful that is. It's like Jesus' coronation as king. It's like him coming and, and, and John the Baptist. And it says that the heavens were torn open. Only two times in the Bible mentions this torn open heaven where you can just like, See and heaven is now there's no distance all of a sudden between heaven and earth it's like they're coming in this instant and one at jesus's baptism and that the, this this holy spirit coming down like the image like a, a dove and this voice coming out and saying what this theme of john this theme of marks he's the son of god this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased this theme of He's the Christ, he's the King, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. From heaven, torn open in this, the voice of God coming out from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, this is him. This is who Mark is portraying Jesus as. He's putting together these stories from the eyewitness testimony of Peter and he's writing them down and you can just get into this story like the best story you ever heard. You can get into it and be a part of it. You can just feel your way in it and see it and see these things happening. They're descriptive, what, what is happening. They're powerful. They're moving. And they're action-packed. Mark is moving and jumping from one thing to another and saying this word immediately over and over again. Immediately this happened. The next, immediately this happened. So it's a fast-paced gospel. It's a moving gospel displaying this servant king who's a man, and yet he's God. And he's serving, and yet he's acting in the earth. And so we looked at these stories of uh, this authority of Jesus, you know, how it says that he taught like no one else taught. There's this other factor, he said, it said that he talked as with authority, not as our scribes taught. He taught like no one that had ever heard taught, you know, that, that, that would teach. Jesus taught with authority, not like all the other religious authorities. He taught with this uniqueness. There's something really different about Jesus. And that's very interesting. We'll look at that, the, the holiness of God and the holiness of Jesus. And a lot of people think that that's the holiness is kind of like his righteousness, his purity. But holiness is, is different. That's literally more what it means. It means different. It means other than. Like holy is something other than. It's different than. Jesus was different than. He, 
He did everything different. He taught differently. He had an other than authority. It was different the way he talked, the way he spoke. And Mark is pointing this out. And so he does di different things. We looked at the way he called his disciples. Other rabbis, disciples picked them. But Mark is saying Jesus went out and he picked his disciples. He said, come and follow me. I choose you. And straightway, it says, they dropped their nets. Peter and Andrew, these fishermen, and James and John, they dropped their nets and leave their father and just follow Jesus. There's something other than about Jesus. There's something unique about him, different, holy about him, something weighty about the way he talks, the way he says things, the way he calls his disciples. There's something unique going on. This is the Mashiach, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Mark is pointing this out in every exciting story as we go through this gospel and we're carried along with them. We're carried along in these stories like, what would it be like just to drop your career nets and say, hey, Dad, bye, you know, and jump out of the boat and just follow this man calling them saying, come and follow me. And just happening, immediately dropping your nets and jumping out and following this man calling you by name to come and follow him. And it just goes into this next story we looked at where where. These friends are so impassioned by this unique other than Jesus that they like, we can just get our friend, this uh, a man that is paralyzed, our friend that is paralyzed to Jesus, something great's going to happen. But they can't get to him because the crowds are around. See, this uniqueness about Jesus, people want to be near and around. And so they have to rip off the roof to lower this paralytic man, and they're waiting for Jesus to heal, do something spectacular for him and Jesus says son and they're like yeah your sins are forgiven <sighs> and then there's the arguing the speculators there the religious leaders that have come from all over to see what the what the happenings is of this Jesus of Nazareth and they're speculating in ways and grumbling inside and doubting saying who can forgive sins but God alone and they're right not right in their attitude because they don't know that Jesus is God. He does have the authority to forgive sins. Mark is just jumping into this theme that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God. He can forgive sins. And he, Jesus says to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, heals this paralytic man. And he jumps up and can immediately pick up his mat and walk and do exactly what Jesus told us. The power of God is working in and through Jesus. And Mark takes you to that story. And we looked at the, another story last week about Jesus, uh, you know, his disciples picking heads of grain and some Pharisees catching them on that. Uh, you're breaking the Sabbath and this argument. And then Jesus confronting them and saying who he is. I am Lord. He said the son of man, a reference that named of himself, you know, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. Not just over it, I guide, I tell you what it means. It's like, I created the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am the rest of God. Which means, that, like that scripture in Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Talk about a rest for your souls, a rest that no one else can give you but Jesus. I am the Sabbath. I mean, he's making claims that no man has ever made before. And the disciples themselves are mind-boggled by this. And today, they're going to get mind-boggled even more. 
Because Mark's just going to come to another story. It's a day in the life with Jesus. Let's see what it's like a day in the life with Jesus is like today. Let's, let's look at that. You see, and you might ask, who then is this? Because I might have thought Jesus was this. But when we go through our life with Jesus, we start asking now, who are you, Jesus? I thought I had you like in my little combined box, you know, but now you're just breaking all through that. I didn't know you were going to do this and that. You know, who then is this? And that happens today. The disciples had gone on this journey. They had seen all these things, think very, very, very powerful things. And now this text today starts off in Mark 4, 35 through 36, saying, on that day. On that day. So we're looking at a day when this storm happens. And we go back to uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. So this whole chapter is a day in a life with Jesus. On that day, when evening had come, so it's toward the end of this day, Jesus says to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. So Jesus is already in the boat. They're already in the boat just as he is. He doesn't get out of the boat. He doesn't go change. He doesn't go get a bag. He doesn't go get anything. Just as the boat as he was, they leave to go to the other side. And it mentions this insignificant detail. There were other boats with them. On that day, what day is this when we look back at 4.1? Well, it's a day that began with teaching. Mark 4.1.3 says he began to teach the people beside the sea. This is the, the Sea of Galilee. It's not a sea, it's a lake. They uh, call it Lake Gesineret too, and that's what they, similar to what they call it today. It's a lake. And there, Jesus is teaching. This is his home base there in Capernaum. That's uh, where Peter and, and um, Andrew live, their house most likely. He's staying in there. And so he's teaching down by the lake, you know, down by the lake, you know, hanging out teaching. But the crowds are always pressing in, just like in the house. They were so pressed, the guy couldn't get to them. They had to tear the roof over. So it's the same way by the sea. I think that'd be a little calmer, but people are pressing in. Jesus is back to the water, you know. And so uh, many people, as we see in Jesus' life, were, were asking for prayer and healing and all these things. But he can't teach. So what does he do, it says in this text of Mark 4, 1 through 3. A very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat in it. On the sea. So he gets into a boat and he uses the water like a barrier to keep the crowds from getting to him. Okay, you know, Peter, you know, drift the boat out a little bit. Anchor's about right here. Everyone can still hear me, but they can't come through the water. Make sure it's, you know, deep enough to where they can't get to me. And so now they can hear him. Now he's teaching. Uh, so he's in the boat teaching uh, by, on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Verse 2 says, this is a day in the life of Jesus. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Now that's kind of different, parables. He's teaching in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And this is the main parable that Mark uh, brings out there in Mark 4 in the, in the life of Jesus, but he's teaching. Sounds like this teaching is going to go on all day. So there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. Mark is hitting some of the highlights. He mentions some other parables that Jesus talks about. 
but they're pressing into G- G- to get to Jesus, and he's talking about this sower. He's talking, teaching in parables. Sower sows the seed. He also talks about the lamp under the basket. He talks about the mustard seed. Uh, Mark concludes that day. That it's now evening. It's starting to be evening in Mark 4, 33 through 34. It says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Jesus is teaching He's teaching them and he's speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So there might have been some breaks in between some of the parables, some teaching time where they're out on that boat. And he, they go, hey, what are you doing? You know, Jesus, you know, and then Jesus teaches again. Then he's explaining it to his disciples. Hey, what did you mean by that? We didn't get it either. You know, what are you talking about? So these things are happening. Mark doesn't, he's fast paced. He doesn't fill in all those things. But we see that there were times where Jesus was able to explain these parables uh, in the scriptures that Jesus brings Uh, about to the disciples he explains these parables he explains the parable and we get to hear that conversation through mark because peter's on that boat getting that interpretation and retelling this story you're like in that story you're on the boat with them the disciples you're getting in on the jesus explaining what this parable meant of the sower and the seed the sowing The sower sows the seed, and the seed is the word of God. And so he's teaching that message, and it's not always successful. A lot of times the seed is dependent upon the soil it falls on. The soil is different types of people. That's what the soil is. Maybe different types of hearts in which that's like the soil. It comes in, the word comes into, some falls on rocky ground, and Satan comes in and steals it. So Jesus is interpreting all this. When the bird comes in and takes the seed along, what that is is Satan. Satan comes and steals that word. Then there's these other things that happen, Jesus says. He says sometimes persecution happens. Life gets hard. And they go, "Uh, who is this? Who then is this? I thought my life was going to be easy with you, Jesus. Who then is this? Well, the sun's coming out and withering and they have no deep roots. And Jesus says what that means is when persecution, tribulation comes, and he actually says, on account of the word. Not some disobedience, some kind of thing. On account of the word that is in you, persecution. It's an attack on that word. People fall away, wither. Word is being sown, doesn't always produce fruit, doesn't always arrive where the intention of that seed of the word of God is intended to go. And then there's the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world. They're a slow choke on people, choking out the word. Again, the attack, Satan, steal the word, choke out the word. Jesus is preaching the word, he's teaching the word in parables, he's sowing the word, but this word won't always have that fruit effect that Jesus says, but on some, the good soil. There'll be such a multiplication, it'll be phenomenal. 30, 60, 100 fold, multiplying times. 30 times is a lot, 60, it's 100 times, you know. That seed will produce and flourish. And Jesus explains this in detail, and you're right there in the boat, right? You're right there with the disciples. You're getting in on the, on the teaching to the 12, you know. How many ever Jesus has at this point uh, on the boat. And so this is a day in the life 
of Jesus. And now Jesus is still on that boat and it's evening and he don't get out of the boat. He don't go and he's out these people. and He's like, let's go to the other side. And then as they turn to go to the other side, there's this insignificant detail as they turn to go because you're looking around and you're telling this story. Peter's telling and recounting this story. And as you recount a story, you throw it doesn't have anything to do with going to the other side. It's an insignificant detail. He said, then there were other boats around us. Just one little line in the Bible. Why is that there? It's insignificant. It doesn't propel the story forward at all. But for some people, ancient historians who read and write things, they go, this is unique. This is the thing that jumps out to them. Something that we read over and skip over to them is like gold in the word. It's like there were other boats around him. Why would you say that? And so Tim Keller brings out this person who's studied all ancient types of writings and he's looked at these insignificant details. We have two at least in this story. One is they go to find Jesus and they're going to wake him up. He's asleep in the back and he's on a cushion. Has nothing to do with the story. Who cares? You know, he's asleep and they're trying to wake him up and waves are coming on. And there's just this little pause because you're telling a story. He's like, and this meaning in Greek is like a pillow. Like he had a pillow under his head, this cushion. He's, Jesus zonked out back there in the middle of the story. Insignificant detail. That pops out to certain people. Tim Keller mentions this book. I ended up getting it. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. And it's a story that this guy writes you know, four or five hundred pages about insignificant details in the Bible. You know what I mean? It's, it's really super interesting about these things that are put in. And that what it shows is that when you're comparing them to people that are making up stories and writing legends, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, these details aren't in there. They don't stop to tell that because they're not told from, like, being in a story and an eyewitness, these insignificant details that an eyewitness would throw in. But if you're just writing and making up something, you don't put those things in, especially 2,000 years ago. You didn't. So these writers and ancient historians who look at that, this is something that jumps out. And to me, that's powerful because it just gets me into the story more. Like, I'm listening to a true story that's real, that I can relate on, uh, relate to on, and that I can believe. It's not something made up, like people say. The Gospels were written 100 years later by people, and they didn't. This is written all the time by some of the most intellectual people in the world. Oh, they were written, I think, two or 300 years later. This guy was making up. He's trying to build the church. He's trying to exaggerate these stories. Why would they put details like that in it? Richard Bauckham says, another um, uh, a theologian, if I can find his quote here, on that day in the life with Jesus, is Vincent Taylor. He's a 20th century century biblical scholar in the good order of things. He said this. He said, these details are so unnecessary to the story and therefore have the marks of genuine reminiscence. There's no other reason for those to be there. It has the marks of of somebody genuinely, an eyewitness genuinely reminiscing about a story that they experienced. That's why they're there. (laughs) Because these stories are real and they're reliable and they're eyewitness testimony. So when it says Jesus was so tired, he was so exhausted that he's falling asleep and he's he's on a cushion. Who then is this? I asked, who is this man? Because they see him teach all day, they're with him all day, and he's like a man. 
He's so tired. He's so exhausted. They start on the other side in the boat. I mean, it is kind of evening, but I mean, it's not time to get over there and make camp and go to bed somewhere, right? To sleep somewhere. He's already zonked. I mean, the boat's taking off, and he's like, (gasps) (laughs) you know, before they get very far. I mean, that's exhausted. That's tired. This is a man. Oh, man, Jesus, who is this man? Who is this? I mean, it's like, He's tired, but he's doing all these miraculous things as as if he's God. He's all God, Mark is showing, but also he is man, and he's exhausted. He's asleep on this cushion. And two things happen when they startle and wake him. Carest not thou, I like that in the King James Version, master that we perish, carest not. I believe it's Peter, again, because Peter's telling the story, and he's the one that says he has a cushion, you know. So that would be that eyewitness testimony type thing happening there. The Bible doesn't specifically say but he, who it was, but one of the disciples says that, and he wakes up, and two things happen. Jesus rebukes the wind and says to the sea. <laughs> now this is different. This is other than. This is holy. This is nothing of what they expected to happen they might have expected something kind of pretty good to happen like don't you care we're about to die and these aren't fishermen that are easily terrified they've been on boats they've been on the sea of galilee a lake that has frequent storms uh you can look at the geography of it it you know it has high mountains winds come down it's low below sea level the size of it they have huge storms they're they're used to storms this one is a a killing storm This is a storm we're not going to survive. This is a storm that we're going to drown. And drowning isn't fun. It's not a, you know, a great way to die. They might not find your body. You might not have a proper burial. They might not find out what happened to you. I go down the bottom. You might become fish food. It's just not a good death. It's scary. They're afraid. Don't you care? Jesus, wake up. The boat's filling with water. It's splashing over. How can you not care but jesus gets up and does these two things he rebukes the wind he says to the sea peace another version says quiet trying to sleep be quiet (laughs) peace be still two things and he ain't talking to them he ain't calling some incantation, saying some prayer to somebody, you know, calling on some power. He is speaking directly to the wind and the sea. And the wind stops immediately. Hurricane. This is the people that describe this storm in the Greek and what it's saying. It's like hurricane-type winds. It's how powerful. Can you imagine a hurricane? Florida people, come on. And then it just going, bam, stopping. Waves splashing up over the boat. You know, this is the second thing. Peace, the wind ceases. But even maybe combination of miraculous with that, when he says, not just peace, but be still, spoke to the waves, to the sea. That's what it says. And the water stopped. The waves went down. Have you ever gotten up early in the morning at the lake? We used to go over to Elephant Butte and 
you know, there'd be all these waves and it'd be windy and the boats would be out there. And then you'd wake up in the morning and it was like perfectly glass. You'd be, let's be the first water skiers to get out on this water. And you're just skiing across the perfectly glass lake. It went from that, from these giant waves spilling over the boat to just perfectly still, calm. So this is other than, this is holy, this is a, a God who commands nature and it obeys. I, I called it the, the God who commands the elements, the elementary things that everything is made up of. He knows them. The Greeks might not have quite understood Adam and what an Adam was. They had Adam, this undivisible thing they called an Adam, you know, this invisible thing. Had some discussions about that. They didn't know. Today we know. We can see microscopes, electron microscopes, see inside these little invisible things, uh, how they're held together. Atoms, not the smallest things. They're smaller things, and those smaller things can be divided into smaller things, and they're made up of protons and neurons and electrons spinning around. They're electrically charged, and there's these invisible things that we can now see through the, you know, the verse about Jesus says, in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, for through him, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Jesus, everything was made by him and through him. Father, architect, God creating everything by, through Jesus. Jesus is in creation. He is not a created being. He is God, the eternal Son of God. All things were made. All things were created through Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. They're for his glory, for the glory of Jesus. Who is this man? He's the creator God, the creator of visible and invisible things. That's who he is. And he is before all things, and in him... I like this, verse 17 of Colossians 1. And in him all things hold together. I mean, we're looking at the physics of things and the breakdown of, of, um, of atoms and neurons. And there was this thing called gluon. Gluon's this field that holds the atom together. It's like this, and they named it gluon. And I said, Jesus is the gluon. He's the thing that holds things together. Without Jesus, atoms would just fall apart. And I wondered, as I thought about him speaking to the wind, you invisible wind, wherever you come from, down these mountains created. I created you to come at different times in certain ways. I now speak to you. Quiet! And it stops. But then water, waves and water in that lake, like H2O, you know, water, hydrogen, this oxygen and two hydrogen molecules. I, I wondered if he just, like, when he spoke to the water, I made you, I made the invisible atom that makes up water, the water of life that we all have to drink or we won't live much longer than two or three days without it. This H2O miraculous thing God created and these waves are coming over. I just wondered how he did it. Just to ponder, might as well, I'm in the story. I just want to see these giant waves go. Like, I, I kind of picture him just like, I hold all things together. Oxygen, hydrogen, separate. Come back together. Poosh. <laughs> like, because, you know, he's like speaking to these 
atoms that obey him, and that's what scientists are digging into now, which I think is really interesting, and none of you probably care about, but quarks and quark theory and string theory and these things they can put over in New York and California, and somehow they're communicating to each other, and these scientists are trying to figure, how can that, when you do this with this atom, and that half part of that, you know, and it's like, wow. It's like, because it's the invisible world, and it's like, Jesus made those things. He created, and he holds it together. He can separate it, poop, and put it back together. And so the disciples, when this happens, it says that they now were, they were afraid for their life, scared, terrified. And then afterwards, it says, when this happened, it said, they were feel, filled with great fear. They were fearful before. You'd think they'd be like, oh, all the fear's gone. Whew, thought we were going to die. Jesus did it. But it doesn't say that. This final verse, 41, says they were filled with great fear. See, that's the title of this sermon. Who then is this? That's the question. I thought Jesus was this great teacher. We've been with him all day teaching. I've seen him do some great things. Yeah. I thought the Messiah was going to do this. Uh, you know, and, and, and the Son of God thing, that's kind of a stretch. I'm having a hard time with that, what that means. But he's doing some things like forgiving sins. I don't know, but he, that man did get up a while. You know, I don't know. They're, they're, they're trying to grasp it, right? This is profound. And whatever they thought Jesus was at this point, now they're saying, in great fear, just witnessing this, which is very unique. It's very different than most of the other stories and healings and with people and all that. This is nature. This is something in the elements he's commanding and they're obeying him. It says, who is this? Who then is this? Who even the winds and the sea obey him? Like water does what he tells it to. Wind does what it tells it. It might be something they didn't, they were trying to comprehend, but that's not who they thought Jesus was. Has, has Jesus ever confronted you with something so grand and, and, and challenging in your life that even as a believer, you said, okay, wait a second. Who then is this? I thought Jesus was this. I had him, you know, I expanded my box this big, and I thought it was there, you know. But then this happens, and he commands wind and water, and then I go, who then is this? Who, who called me to leave my nets? I thought he was going to be this guy delivering us from Rome and rule and all these things I've read about. But who then is this? That's the question that comes out of this and it's filled with great fear greater than the fear of death like what is it I, I would think you know about to drown and become fish food or whatever would be the greater fear but the calming what is it about being in the presence like I've faced some storms I've faced that I might die I've faced this and that but now I'm in the presence of someone I don't think I really know it's too big it's too grand. It's too scary. Like, I might be able to manage a storm, but can I manage this man? Can I manage this Jesus? I don't think I can manage him. I don't think I'm in control. I think he is. I'm not in control. I'm not in, I was out of control with this storm. I admit that was pretty scary, but now great fear because this man isn't manageable by me. He's not a man you can control. He is the God who is in control. I'm not in control. I'm not all that powerful. This guy is all powerful. 
asleep on a cushion like a tired, exhausted man and then get up and commanding the elements to stop and cease. Who then is this? That is the question. C.S. Lewis, I came across some good quotes with him. Um, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed done. Oh yeah, Jesus, come on. Yeah, that's, I, I love you in my life. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. Hurts some. Hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. I don't understand what you're doing, Jesus. What are you doing? Why are you knocking out these walls? Why are you doing this, Jesus? This is C.S. Lewis of Mere Christianity. What on earth is he up to? I think it's what the disciples are saying. Who then is this? What does he plan to do? Who am I following? What, what's going on here? C.S. Lewis goes on to say the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you were thinking of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a nice little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he comes and intends to live there himself. He's doing something much more grander than we can imagine, and a lot of it is scary. It's knocking down walls that we trusted in ourselves, that we have control over, and he's knocking those out. This is a lot of time what the scary thing of suffering is that brings in our life. We come into that weighty presence of God, that holiness of God, and they are terrified. The weight of God's glory, his sovereign power, is resting on this man called Jesus, and that's not all that I thought he he would be. I didn't know he would be that. I don't know what to do with this holiness of God. Peter had seen some of that when he was first called in Luke 5, 8. What happens is Jesus comes to them and says, hey, go back out and cast your nets over here. And Peter says in Luke 5, Master, we toiled all night and we, we took nothing. You're not a fisherman. Be telling me what to do. But then he goes, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So he does. And you guys know what happens. Simon Peter saw it, their nets so full, tearing with fish, other boats coming to try to help them get in, so many fish just appearing out of nowhere, again, commanding nature, commanding the fish that he created, everything in the seas. And what happens when just in this miracle, Peter is in the presence of Jesus? It says, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Oh, Lord, depart from me. I, he felt the weight of the holiness of God, this otherness, this differentness of Jesus, this holiness of God, this weightiness. This is what C.S. Lewis talks about in the weight of glory. Describes like we're like water and he is like the rock. The rock of Christ comes and when it hits that water, it displaces the water. The water doesn't displace that rock. 
Jesus is that weight of glory. And when he comes and he commands nature and he commands wind and waves and he stops that, you're in the presence of God and all of a sudden it dawns on you. Who then is this? And the weight of glory, of the glory of the Son of God is all around you and you start realizing your inadequacies. You start realizing your own sin. That's what Peter did. The holiness of God, the other thanness of God creates this awareness in us of how far we are from God, our own sin. That's what happened with Peter just in, in that story of the multiplying of the fish. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And it happened all throughout the Bible when the weight of the glory of God and his presence descends uh, with Isaiah in chapter 6. One example, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. He's saying, I am a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinful man. We read about Jesus today in Peter who committed no sin and who no deceit came from his mouth. Isaiah in the holiness presence of God realizes I'm a man undone. With Moses, he had told Moses, no man sees my face and lives. They knew that to be in the presence of God, there's great fear. Are we going to die in the presence of God? Jesus on this boat, he just commanded, it's, it's, it's a weight of glory, like what do we do in the presence of such majesty, of such transcendent power? And that fear is greater than the fear of drowning that they just had. It says a great fear now came upon them. Revelations 1, see John, and he sees him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's hard for us to imagine the weight of glory and being there on that boat and that fear that comes from, oh my gosh, the holiness of God is in this man. This is, he's not just, he's not just in this man like a prophet. He is God. He speaks to waves and seas. He speaks to the, the, the chaotic nature of the world and brings order to it immediately. He's the creator of it all. And in the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis says, in, the, in that face, capital F, the face of God, seeing the face of Jesus, in the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. See, when you're in that presence, he's either going to look on you with delight and glory or with an awareness and a weight of your sin that leads you into shame that cannot be disguised. And today that's the question. Who then is this? What has Jesus done? What did he come to accomplish? He came to go to the cross and die for our sins and bear the weight of the shame of our sin. And in him, we can see him face to face and him looking at us with inexpressible glory. God's looking at you with inexpressible glory because you're in Jesus and you have the forgiveness. But if you don't, Jesus himself said in John 3 after Nicodemus, he said, the wrath of God abides on you. Those who don't 
believe the inexpressible if they're in the presence of God the inexpressible weight of bearing their own sin their sin hasn't been forgiven it's an inexpressible sin in their own life that they cannot disguise in the face of a holy God it can't be hidden God reveals and that's what they're experiencing they're experiencing on that who then is this they're experiencing the weight of the glory of the very God who created them. Amen. Amen. Will it be an expressible glory as we're in Christ and we see his face not looking upon us or the shame of our sin, but seeing Christ in us and in Christ alone our hope is found. I don't stand in my own righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. I see your blessing upon me. I see I'm blessed in you. I see you're delighted me. And it's either that, being in Jesus, or being outside of Jesus. And feeling the, the weight of the shame of our sin. Without a Jesus, and he is the only one who's borne our sin for us. And there is no other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Only in Jesus can the Father look on you with delight. So as we come to sing this final song, to celebrate the blessing of God upon our lives and his delight in us because his delight is in Jesus, the man we read about today, who then is this? None other than the Son of God, the Christ. Amen? Amen. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. Does not everybody have one? They're going to come up. Okay, I'm going to pause and we're going to come up and get your communion elements. I thought you guys were partaking with me. Check, 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 no. together as we take the bread out.
remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and gave thanks to the Father for it. He said, this is my body. Take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. manner he took the cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins take and drink of it and when you do do this in remembrance of me remember my death until I come let us partake together and remember the death of Jesus upon the cross we thank you father for your son Jesus Christ and the mighty man that he was, the mighty servant king that he was, that our king Jesus would die for us, bear our sin, bear the shame of our sin, that when we by faith repent and believe in the gospel, you look on us and see Jesus, you look on us with delight, you call us your sons and daughters, call us your very children you put your very spirit inside of us and you cause us through the spirit of adoption you've adopted us into your family God and Jesus we cry Abba Abba Father and you look on us with delight and we praise you that Jesus made that possible Thank you for the blessing in our life. Let us sing about rejoicing in your wonderful blessing. Amen. Oh 
benediction song the Lord bless you cause his face to shine upon you and may you find his ultimate rest in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior your complete salvation in him may you go in the power of Jesus Christ his name his authority 
and the power of his Holy Spirit. And may you reach out to this lost and dark and dying world Mm -hmm. separated from God and preach the word, speak the word that Jesus has come to save the good news. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love one another.